the text where Paul continues to defend that his gospel is not one that was influenced or taught to him by man, but came from Christ. And the text today highlights not only why it wasn't plausible that Paul received his gospel uh, from the apostles or anyone else, but also highlights uh, important gospel-related themes for us. So let's read the text and work through it. If you're able to stand, go ahead and stand and follow along as I read. Galatians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that, we, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be, preser- might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for your word. We ask for your help right now as we look to your word that you would open our hearts, open our eyes, that we behold wondrous things from your law, and that you be glorified in our response to what you have written to us. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Verse 1 of chapter 2, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. In this section, Paul's writing about a second visit to Jerusalem. This is a different visit than the one in the previous section that we talked about last week. And it was 14 years later. Now, most agree that Paul means 14 years after his conversion, not after the last trip to Jerusalem. 14 years And so, let's imagine for a moment. I mentioned last week how there's about a decade or more in in here where we know nothing about Paul's life. What he was doing. Who he was doing it with. And so, will you let me imagine with you just for a moment. And here's why. Because we can tend to be um, robotic about what we read in the Bible. 
But these were real people. This is about a real human. Paul was real. A guy who lived a real life. And we know from Acts that Paul was a tent maker. And we should remember that because for those 10 plus years that we know nothing about in writing, Paul was probably doing what you do. Going to work day in and day out. And while he was doing what was necessary to provide for himself, he was preaching and teaching the gospel. Paul needed to work. Needed an income to survive. And so we can imagine that during this decade, and let's think here. That's a long time. It's been 10 years. Very long years since I turned 40. I mean, we can, we can get to that mark and look back over the decade and think, man, we got here so quickly. But when you think it's been a long 10 years, 10 years is a long time. And week after week, Paul is working and making a way for him to live and to preach the gospel of Jesus. And how often was he preaching? And where was he preaching? In synagogues? House churches? What did discipleship look like during this time for Paul? And we don't need an answer to those questions. We just need to recognize that these things were happening because we are called to follow Jesus in the midst of our lives too. So you don't want to separate it out as if Paul didn't know what it was like for you and for me to live and to work and to do the things that we're called to do in Christ in the midst of our lives. Now, here's the doozy of the question. Was Paul married at this point? I know there is a lot of debate around this because his wife is never ever mentioned in the Scriptures, but historically, it just doesn't seem plausible that Paul was not married at some point. Why? To be on the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. It was a requirement. And it's believed that Saul was on the Sanhedrin. Now, some will say that Saul was so respected and so smart that they made an exception for this young man and allowed him to be on the Sanhedrin without being married. But I would say exceptions and Pharisees don't go together. Also, the Talmud, the Jewish teaching actually taught that it was unnatural for a man to be unmarried. It, it says specifically that an unmarried man was incomplete. So in my humble opinion, it makes sense to me that Paul was married. Now, was he married when he's writing these letters? Well, definitely not when he wrote 1 Corinthians 7, where he says that Unmarried and widows ought to remain single as I am, Paul writes. 
So if he was married, and I think that at some point he was, why wasn't he any longer? We don't know for sure, but some imagine that either his wife died or that just as Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 7, when Paul became a follower of Jesus, his wife did not. Did not follow Christ, did not believe in Christ, and eventually left because of his dramatic change. Again, we do not know the answer to those questions for sure, but they're important so that we remember that the apostles were humans. It's one of the points that Paul is going to make in this text. The apostles were humans, no different than any of you. They lived their lives following Jesus as they worked out what that meant in work and in neighborhoods, and in families, and in church. Now, here in the text, it is likely that these verses, this visit that he's writing about, correspond to the visit mentioned in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. But it says here in verse 1 that he went up with Barnabas and took Titus. Now, Barnabas played an uh, an important role in the early church. He was originally named Joseph, was a Levite who grew up in Cyprus. He was given the name Son of Encouragement. That's what Barnabas means. By the apostles, because of his ministry and what he was like, what his character was like, how he interacted with people. They literally named him Son of Encouragement. Titus was one of Paul's co-workers and played a significant role in Corinth. Verse 2, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30, the text that these verses likely correspond with, it says... Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So it's likely that the revelation that Paul refers to here in verse 2 of chapter 2 in Galatians is the revelation given by Agabus, not necessarily one that's given directly to Paul, that they went to Jerusalem in response to this revelation about the famine that was going to take place. So then Paul and Barnabas, and and we learn here in Galatians 2, Titus as well, go to Jerusalem bringing this gift for the famine relief. And while there, he set before the apostles the gospel that he proclaimed among the Gentiles, Paul says. And he says he did this privately with the apostles, with the leaders. Because he wants to get things absolutely clear. Why? Well, he he tells us, in order to make sure I was not running 
or had not run in vain. Now, what does that mean? We should, we should ask, what does Paul mean by that statement? In order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Is there some doubt in Paul about this message that he's been proclaiming? Is he concerned that the Jerusalem apostles will say that, that actually he is wrong? That he has it wrong and that, that that's why he's uh, wanting to make sure he isn't running in vain is to, to know from the apostles of what he's preaching is accurate. And the answer to that is no. Paul has been clear that the gospel he is and has been preaching is from Christ and is the one gospel. That there is only one gospel. Paul has no doubt about that. That's what all of chapter 1 is emphasizing. In fact, he's already said that if anyone, including himself or an angel, comes and preaches a gospel other than the one that he has preached, let them be accursed. So there isn't doubt about the gospel. So why then does Paul say that he wanted to, to, to teach them or tell them the gospel that he's been proclaiming to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Well, first, again, this is a reference to Isaiah 49. Chapter, four, or chapter 49, verse 4 says in Isaiah, But I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And then immediately after that, the servant is commissioned to be the light to the nations. We could probably make a good guess that Isaiah 49 is a favorite passage of Paul's. But what Paul is concerned about is this. When he says, to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain, what his concern is is this. If he goes to Jerusalem and the apostles are pressured by the Jews and say that Paul's gospel is incomplete. That does nothing. It doesn't do anything at all to the true gospel. They would be promoting a false gospel just as the false rival teachers are doing in Galatia. They'd be promoting a false gospel, but it would destroy Paul's ministry even among the Gentiles because the followers of Jesus would hear what the apostles had said about Paul's message and they would doubt the validity of Paul. And so his concern is that if there's disagreement, if there's discord between him and the apostles... A, they're wrong if there is, he would say. But secondly, his ministry then is destroyed because the respect for the apostles in Jerusalem was such that the word would be out and he would have no ministry. Verse 3 continues, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Another evidence that the rival teachers in Galatia were wrong is that when in Jerusalem, the apostles didn't pressure Paul to have Titus or pressure Titus himself to be circumcised. 
Now, we know that Timothy willingly was circumcised for the sake of ministering to Jewish people. But if the apostles say to Paul that Titus must be circumcised, then then that tells the rival teachers that they were right. That Paul has indeed left out part of the gospel to make it more palatable for the Gentiles. Now, this is the first time that circumcision is mentioned in Galatians. And just so we're clear, according to the Old Testament, circumcision was required to be part of God's people. Even some Jews who believed Jesus was the Messiah insisted that Gentiles were required to receive circumcision and to observe the law of Moses to be saved. I mean, that is, that's the point of the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. In Acts 15.1, it says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And then verse 5 of of chapter 15 of Acts, But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And that's the purpose then of the Jerusalem council making a clear decision on the matter. Paul lets them know that the outcome of the private meeting in Jerusalem is that they did not compel Titus to be circumcised. In verse 4, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. Paul's saying that there were false brothers, pseudo-family members, They had come in, they had snuck in to try to enforce circumcision and obedience to the law. And he says that their intent was to make them slaves. Now, this has massive implications here. It really is what Paul is trying to get at throughout this entire letter. What does he mean? To make them slaves... To enslave them refers to making them live under the law of Moses, and therefore without the freedom that comes in Christ. They're trying to compel people. These rival teachers are trying to compel people. Why? Because they didn't really understand or grasp what Paul refers to in the next verse as the truth of the gospel. Either it was true that the death and resurrection of Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit overcame the powers of the old age and freed people and then transformed them from within, or it wasn't. But if it was true, then rescued people, no matter their nationality, were one family. And these rival teachers appear to be family members, genuine followers of Jesus, but they haven't embraced the truth of the gospel. Their purpose, their goal was to bring them into slavery. In other words, to take the whole community back into Egypt. Back into exile. They didn't arrive as prisoners who longed to be free, but as those who desired to bring others into bondage with them. 
Paul here is speaking of the freedom that we have in Christ. That's going to be a theme as we continue, especially later in the book of Galatians. The freedom that we have in Christ. The new exodus in Christ has been accomplished. It is done. And it would be foolishness to go back to Egypt. Continues in verse 5. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul says we didn't yield to them. We didn't submit to them. We didn't, we didn't listen to them. We didn't circumcise Titus so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved for you, Paul says. Because anything that distorts the truth of the gospel should be resisted. Anything that distorts the truth of the gospel, that changes it, that enslaves rather than sets free, should be resisted. Verse 6, and from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Now, let's pause for a second here, okay? And just acknowledge for a minute that the way Paul refers to the apostles, the guys that walked with Jesus and are apostles, is, seems a little strange if we just read these verses. I mean, in verse 2 and then verses 6 through 9, he almost seems sarcastic. Like he's dismissing the apostles in Jerusalem, those who seem to be influential. So what is that about? I mean, if we're honest, it's a little hard to tell what kind of a guy Paul is by the way he refers to the Jerusalem apostles in these verses. If we don't have context outside of these verses. And the key, I think, is the parenthetical comment, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. God shows no partiality. We should learn from that just as the Galatians and rival preachers needed to learn from that. Paul's saying that a person's, even, even if it's an apostle or a group of apostles who literally walked with Jesus while he was on the earth, a person's reputation, past or present, means nothing to him. That's what Paul's saying. It means nothing to me. They added nothing to me. Did the apostles have an official standing in the community? Yes. But they were not the gospel. The apostles were not the gospel. And their input didn't and couldn't change the gospel. And Paul's saying here that we, we should be cautious about granting too much authority to people, since the final authority resides in the gospel, not in human beings. And I'll give you an example here. One of the commentaries that I read this week made this exact point. All, all of the commentaries I read this week made this exact point. But one of them, one particular one, was going a little farther by saying 
we should be thankful for the ministry of pastors like, and then in the commentary listed, four pastors. All of them names that I am not going to name, and all of them names that you would recognize. And here's the thing. Since the writing of that commentary that was published in 2010, three of those four names have fallen in some way, whether doctrinally or through their actions and ways they have treated others. It's just a good reminder that the point that the author of this commentary was trying to make, he made more clearly because of what he never imagined happening. We should be cautious about giving too much authority or even worse, celebrity to humans because the final authority resides in the gospel, not in human beings. And Paul's saying here that his gospel was independently true regardless of the views of the pillars. They added nothing to me. Now, specifically there, he's saying they didn't change anything about the gospel that I was proclaiming. When they were together and hearing Paul's gospel free of the law, they did not reject it, Paul's saying. Verses 7 and 8, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. They didn't reject it, rather they confirmed it. Whether circumcised or not, it's the same faith, Paul is saying. Faith in Christ alone. There is only one gospel. In verse 8, he's saying that it is God's power. God's power that has been at work in both cases. God gave Peter the power to be an apostle to the circumcision, that means the Jews, and gave Paul the power to go to the Gentiles. But it's God. It's not Peter, it's not Paul, it's not James, it's not anyone else. Verse 9. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Not only did they see Paul was entrusted with the gospel, they also acknowledged that the grace of God was operative in Paul's life. And Paul says that James and Cephas, and Cephas is Peter there, and John seem to be pillars. He means something there. He's implying that the church is a kind of building. It is a kind of temple. It's what Paul writes to the Ephesians and the Corinthians. In Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 22, it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That's what Paul's saying in Galatians 2 as well. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you, and that you is plural, you all, y'all, are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you all as a corporate body? In chapter 6, he talks as individuals. You individually are the temple of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, he's saying you all as a body together are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So we should consider Paul's caution here. Again, he's, he's making this, um, in this verse, this little wink at these three seeming to be pillars. Why? Because these men, who he respects greatly, are the pillars of what is fast becoming a worldwide family and has living and flourishing communities that people in Jerusalem know little or nothing about. The gospel is moving forward, Paul is saying, it's exploding. And people are coming to know the Lord in places outside of Jerusalem. And churches are starting and forming and disciples are being made. These apostles, it says, extend to Paul the right hand of fellowship, agreement, like-mindedness. If the Jerusalem apostles had any question at all about Paul's gospel message, they could have made it clear right then by asking for Titus to be circumcised, but they don't. They extend the hand of fellowship. And so one thing is clear, Paul is saying. The leaders of Jerusalem endorsed the gospel that he is preaching. And there's fellowship. There's community there. And then lastly, verse 10, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is such an incredibly significant verse. The very thing I was eager to do. So, to Paul saying, the one thing, the only thing the apostles asked, the one request that they made of Paul was that he should remember the poor and continue to help them. I think this verse, this point here, makes it most evident that these verses and this trip to Jerusalem coincide with Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. That Paul and Barnabas and Titus were there primarily to bring a gift from the church to help with famine relief. Their family. family, and families lived this way. If cousins in another town fell on hard times, the rest of the family would help them out. That's how Jewish communities function. It's how they strive to live their lives. And not only that, it's how Jesus lived His life. And they were Jesus' followers now. And so we see very early on, immediately really, that, that this is how the church sought to live. As Jesus' followers, this is how they sought to live. The very thing I was eager 
to do is remember the poor. As a community, we long to live this way, as family. We long to live as family. One of our values as a church is gospel community, which says this, Jesus told his disciples in John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. As people deeply loved by God and adopted into his family, we commit ourselves to engaging with one another with purposeful love that reflects the costly, sacrificial love that God showed us when Jesus died for our sins. We do so by joyfully serving one another, sharing our resources with one another as needs arise, actively using our spiritual gifts for the building up of the body, showing hospitality to one another as well as those outside the church, and ultimately choosing to have the same humility of mind as Christ as described in Philippians 2, 5 through 8, considering others better than ourselves. That's what's happening here in this text, the churches are sending money to help to remember the poor in Jerusalem. And the apostles, after hearing the gospel that Paul is proclaiming, give the right hand of fellowship, saying, we are one. We're together in this. And the only thing, Paul says, the only thing that they asked, the only request they made was keep doing this. Keep remembering the poor. Paul says, that's the one thing I was eager to do. I would ask you, how are you living and striving to live as family with the body of Christ? N.T. Wright makes what I think is an important point about verse 10, especially as we approach the next section next week. But he says this, everybody knew that the church in Antioch was of mixed ethnic origin. Nothing had been said when Paul, Barnabas, and Titus came to Jerusalem with money from Antioch as to whether the money had come from Jewish or Gentile Messiah believers. Of course not. So the Jerusalem apostles had been happy to accept this gift as a sign that they in Jerusalem and the mixed-race church in Antioch were family. They were kin. They were part of the same new creation. And the Jerusalem leaders wanted that to continue, not just because they needed help, though that was true as well, but because they did indeed regard this mixed Antioch community as a genuine branch of the family. I would ask you again, how are you living and striving to live as family with and within the body of Christ? One of the things that highlights family and closeness is gathering around a table together. As we consider the Lord's Supper today, we've been called to that. We've, we've not just been called to it, we've been invited and welcomed to come as a family and feast with our Savior and brother Jesus. Jesus whose blood makes us family makes us brothers and sisters with one another and with Him. I mean, imagine for a moment, as Paul talks about the apostles extending to him the right hand of fellowship, at some point, that right hand of fellowship from the Jerusalem apostles to the apostle Paul 
At some point, that meant they, they took the Lord's Supper together. Certainly, they took the Lord's Supper together at some time. And so today, let's come to the table as a family. And let's partake remembering His sacrifice and the cost of uniting each of us together. And let's seek to live out what it means to be a true family, a true community in Christ. We're staying away from Egypt. And living the life of freedom together that He has won, that He has purchased for us. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your goodness and Your grace. You are so good to us, Lord. We thank You for Your kindness, Your mercy. We thank You for Jesus. Lord, we're overwhelmed as we consider that it's you, Jesus, and all that you accomplished through your life, through your death, through your resurrection, all that you accomplished that brings us into family with you. And as part of your family, Lord, we want to be like you. We want to follow you not some imagined character that we call you, Lord, but what you were like. And so even as we consider this text and the apostles' call to Paul to remember the poor, the one thing he was eager to do, help us, Lord, to engage our hearts and our minds remembering that that's exactly what you were like, Jesus. And you never change. So help us, we pray, as family, as we come to the table to, to partake of the bread and partake of the cup, Lord. Help us to remember rightly who you are and what you have accomplished and all that you have granted us in that, Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.